I hope you had a hearty breakfast this morning, church, because we've been having church up in here today, haven't we? Amen. <laughs> Thank you, students, for leading us. There's nothing like a good breakfast when you wake up and you hear that bacon sizzling in the pan and you smell that fresh brewed coffee. A friend of mine is a breakfast connoisseur. He just loves breakfast, and he knows all the best places, and he specifically loves pancakes. And so recently he went to what he calls the best diner in the county for pancakes. And he shows up and he gets there and orders his pancakes. And the waitress brings them out and sets them in front of him. This big, glorious stack of pancakes, just a masterpiece sitting there. And like all good connoisseurs, you know, you have a specific way that you like to prepare your dish. And so he, he gets his maple syrup out and he, he doesn't do the stick butter. He specifically tells the waitress, don't bring me those little squares of like the butter on a stick. When you rub those over the top, it breaks your pancakes, smushes them down. I don't want that. He says, I want the good stuff. You know, I want the sweet cream whipped butter because when you spread that out, it just goes so nice and even over your pancakes. It melts down into them. All that delicious, riches, rich butter flavor saturates the pancake. And then you get that sticky, sweet maple syrup and drizzle it all over the top. Anybody else hungry this morning? Anybody else you feeling it? <laughs> He gets them prepared just the way he likes them, and he takes a big, big cut out of there to take his first bite, make it a nice big one. He puts it in. Bah! His face just has this horrid look on his face, like something terrible had just happened. Can't be. He takes another cut, puts the bite in, and once again, ah, he makes this horrible face, and the waitress says, sir, what's wrong? And he says, look, there's just something wrong with my pancakes, and you guys have the best pancakes in the county. I don't want to complain, but I feel like something might have went wrong with your batter this morning. She says, I am so sorry. So she grabs the pancakes and the maple syrup and the butter. She takes it all away and brings them everything back fresh and new. Sets it on the table and he remakes it the way he does. Spreads that sweet butter over the top. He takes another bite and once again, all that horrid face comes out. Something must be wrong. He said, it must be my taste buds. Maybe I got COVID or something. He's like, I don't know. I can't even taste these things. He starts just like trying to choke down half a stack of pancakes that he's totally just like disgusted by. He's like... Finally, the waitress sees his face and comes up and says, what, is, is something wrong with this stack too? And he says, I'm so sorry. He's like, but there's just something maybe with your batter that went wrong today. And she said, let me go talk to the chef. This just can't happen. And so she goes back into the back and you could see her through the window talking to the cook. And all of a sudden you see the cook pointing at a shelf and then you see her face just drop. And she walks out, and she comes up to the table right up to my friend with this look on her face, and she says, I am so sorry. It's been my fault the whole time. She said, when you've been asking for sweet cream butter, I've been grabbing off the wrong shelf and bringing you mayonnaise. (laughs) Now, this guy hates mayonnaise. I mean, with a passion. He doesn't put mayonnaise on anything. He won't even have mayonnaise in his house. It's, like, not allowed. He doesn't even like it when his neighbors have mayonnaise in their refrigerators. That's how much he hates mayonnaise, right? And very quickly, you could just look at his face and see, man, that was a really bad trade, right? Like, that is not a good substitute. Mayonnaise does not go well. Some of you guys are like, ooh, that sounds good. Let me try it. No, it's not. Believe me, right? It's not a good substitute for that sweet cream, delicious whipped butter. And there's so many things in life that make really terrible substitutes. So many things that we try to trade out for the real thing. And quickly, we find out, man, this was a really bad exchange here. And the passage that we're reading, if you want to open with me to John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. 
We read about a man who was making a really, really bad trade. And it didn't take long for him to realize when he met the real thing, how bad of a trade it actually was. So in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. You know, this passage starts off in verses 1 and 2 with some details, some historical facts that could be easily just looked at and we could say, oh, that's cool. You know, we write it down somewhere and just move on. But unless we really look into verses 1 and 2 and see what these historical and geographical details mean, we might miss the point of this passage. So look with me at verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You know, Jesus wasn't just kind of on his way and then bumped into these people. This wasn't a coincidence or an accident. He was intentionally heading to Jerusalem because it was a time of a feast. Now, scholars debate which which feast it was. Most think it was Passover, but they kind of narrow it down based on context and timing that it was about a handful of different feasts it could have been. Now, feasts were given to the Israelites as a way to remind them of who God was and their relationship with him. And these, these particular feasts were times to remember that God had a plan to save his people. It was called atonement. And so sacrifices were made. Sheep were chosen, lambs that were sacrificed to say God has a plan to save his people. You know, that that means that people in this passage were walking around with that very thought in their minds. As they saw the decorations and the activities that were happening and, and the bustle about this feast time, what was being remembered in their heart and mind was God has a plan to save his people. And that's what they were carrying with them as they were in this, this particular moment in this passage. And then verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, <laughs> this gate, this sheep gate, was an important gate. If we go to Nehemiah chapter 3, we can read all about how Nehemiah was given, granted, uh, he was granted permission by the king to go back to Jerusalem, which had been sacked and destroyed, the people taken into slavery. But he was able to go back, and he was able to take some people with him to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls. And Nehemiah 3 talks to us about these walls being rebuilt and mentions 10 different gates. And now these gates had very specific purposes. They had things that they would accomplish physically, but they also had very important spiritual significance. To remind the people as they would see these gates about different aspects of their relationship with God. And so if we look at Nehemiah 3.1, it says this. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. 
Now, if you're anything like me, you'd think, wow, shouldn't some construction workers be doing this? Like, it's like we're going to build some new building out here, and all of a sudden you see Pastor Mark and Titus and me and Carrie out there, we're all like with some hammers, and you're like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Why is that door so crooked? You know, like, right? But this wasn't built by construction workers and engineers and, and architects. It says the high priest got his priests together, and they went together to hang this gate. It was the first one to go up. It was that important. And it was built and hung by the priests. There was a statement being made here. A statement of spiritual significance. This gate's physical uh, use was for sheep to come into it. That's why it was called the sheep gate. You'd find sheep at, at pasture just outside the gate. And during feast times, they'd be brought in. And that pool that it mentions was used to baptize or to wash and prepare these sheep so they could, be, they could pick the spotless, clean lambs and use them in their ceremony. They'd be sacrificed as this picture to point to the fact that God had made a plan to save his people. That he would send a Messiah, a perfect sacrifice, to finally put sin to bed. And this sheep gate represented that as these sheep would come in and go into this pool and this is where we find Jesus. You know, as we read the New Testament, we see that every time Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he would use this gate. The perfect lamb of God. Standing here in this place. At this time during feast. This was intentional. There was a loud message that Jesus was proclaiming in what he was doing here. You know, the pool's name Bethesda in Aramaic means house of mercy or house of grace. How fitting that grace himself, Jesus Christ, was standing right there. But it wasn't just the place or the time that was intentional. Look at verse 3. It says, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. If you're taking notes this morning, I'd say write this one down. Jesus comes... To the hurting. Jesus always comes to the hurting. As we read through the New Testament, we see Jesus constantly showing up to those gathered together looking for hope. Over and over again, that's where we find Jesus. His heart was for the hurting. And this was no exception. Here lay a bunch of disabled people whose lives were wrecked because of their disabilities and they're laying in hopes that something would happen in this pool. Now, there was a belief that this pool had powers, that God would come or send an angel and stir up these waters. And when they were stirred, if you were the first one into the pool after the waters were stirred, that you would be healed, that there would be power bestowed on you from God. And so these hurting people, these hopeless people would gather around this pool and just wait. And as the water stirred, they'd race each other into the pool because to be the first one meant to be healed. Jesus loves coming to hurting people. And I just wonder, as I think about our community, how many places there are that represent the gathering of hurting, hopeless people. I'm so often reminded when I visit our public school campuses and walk through their hallways, as I'm stopped by students who pull me aside and say, Pastor Rob, you're here today. Can you pray for me? And then just start listing the things. Students who are struggling with bullying or identity or depression, just needing prayer. Teachers who pull me aside and say, man, my life just, just fell apart. I don't even know how I made it to school today. 
can you just pray for me today? I don't mention those things out of shame. I mention them because they're true. It's what happens. People coming together looking for hope in all the wrong things. Things that will never give hope. I think about places across our community like elderly homes where there's so many lonely people just wanting some hope. Hospitals full of people looking for hope. Even government buildings. Even, believe it or not, churches. How easily it is to come to a church and sit under a cross and be so close to the man, Jesus Christ, who's in our presence and to instead put our hope in things that will never satisfy to hope and worship music. Maybe that will give me the energy I need for the week and cheer me up or a good story, a motivational story that a pastor might tell during a sermon time. Or maybe if I serve in enough ministries and do enough service projects, then I'll finally find that hope I'm looking for because I've done enough good deeds. You see how easy it is to be so close to the real thing that really gives hope, but to trade it for lesser things that never will. And y'all, it even happens in church. How many of us come and we're in that boat right now? How many of us would be sitting here and would honestly admit, man, that's me. I come here, I read my Bible, I sing the worship songs, but for some reason, I don't see the power of Jesus in my life. And I want the power of God in my walk, but I just don't see it and I feel hopeless. And I'm sitting here each week. It can be so easy to trade out the one thing that can really give power to your life for something that never will. And the thing is, Jesus' heart is to go to those very people. So those of you who are sitting here today and you say, I have the hope of Jesus. I believe in him. I would hope that Jesus in you is carrying you to those places because that's where Jesus is drawn. To the hopeless, I would hope that he's carrying you to our public schools and maybe even in your own house across the hallway to someone who feels hopeless. That we would be people that bring that hope to the hopeless because that's exactly where Jesus would go. And then in verse 5 it says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Now stop for a second right there. If you're writing, write this down. The second thing is Jesus sympathizes with our situation. You see, people like this who are laying around a pool and they were, they were uh, disabled and suffering in different ways couldn't work, most of them. So most of them were beggars. Most of them probably didn't have much money, and so most of them probably stunk. And culture at that time would find a way to walk way around them. <laughs> to not get close, to not notice them. They were considered rejects and outcasts for the most part. And so as Jesus looks at this guy, he could have easily said the same thing. He could have been like, look at this beggar. Look at this broken person. Let me just walk away. But instead, Jesus was drawn to them. And what he says shows sympathy. Jesus didn't see all that brokenness in a way that he wanted to walk away. Instead, Jesus saw 38 years of being rejected. 38 years of suffering. 38 years of hopelessness and brokenness. He sees this man's story. He sees what's inside of this guy. You know why? Because Jesus sympathizes with our situation. 
And you might be sitting here today, maybe this is your first time in our church. And maybe you're one of those people who thinks, man, I can't go to a church. Like, will they judge me? I don't know if I'll fit in. And I want to tell you, you are in the right place this morning. Not because of any of the people necessarily sitting here, but because of the man, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who's here in our presence. This is where you need to be. And we're just as broken. Everyone in this room is suffering. We have stories. We have our 38 years that we could show as our story. And we need grace. And we need hope just like every other person here. And luckily, hope is here. Jesus Christ is here with us. And he's sympathizing with each of us. And so Jesus looks at this man. Look what he says next. He said to him, do you want to be healed? That question is so powerful and so loaded. There are so many things Jesus can be saying in this. Again, if you're writing down, here's the third thing you can write. Jesus offers hope as he confronts our idols. You see, this man hears this question from Jesus and probably takes it totally the wrong way. Based on his response, he didn't understand Jesus saying, I'm right here. I can heal you. I have the ability. Do you want to be healed? I'm right here. What are you waiting for? Instead, what this guy heard as he's trying to think through his situation was probably something more like, hey, you've been here for 38 years, man. Don't you want to be healed? Why aren't you working harder? Why aren't you trying to get down into that pool? How could you, after 38 years, still not be healed? It's interesting that that man woke up that morning. And thought, I'm going to go to this pool, God's going to show up, and I'm going to be healed. And you know what happened? He woke up that morning. He went to that pool. God showed up. There Jesus was. And he was healed. It just didn't happen the way he thought. You see, he was leaning into the superstition of these waters. His hope was in the water, in that pool, that if he got in fast enough and beat everybody else in it, when that water was stirred, he'd be healed. Instead, true power shows up. Jesus Christ stands there, and we see later in this passage, he does heal him. But I wonder how many of us hear that voice in our head. When we hear Jesus say, don't you want to be healed? And the question we're actually hearing in our mind is, man, i got to work harder. How come after being in a church for 60, 70 years, some of us, how come I'm not, I don't see more power in my life? How come I don't have more hope in my heart? What's going on? Maybe he's telling me I need to work harder. After 70 years, shouldn't I be the model of hope? You know, like I've walked with Jesus so long. And we hear that question. Hey, what could you change? What could you do different? How could you work harder to accomplish this? And that's not at all what Jesus was asking this man. But it's a trap that we tend to fall into, right? And the problem with that is that as we ask what we could do different, how could I fix this? How could I work harder? Every time I say the word I, I'm saying I'm hoping in myself. I can accomplish this. I can do it. It's like climbing another ring on the ladder that leads us up to the throne of our life, and that's where we're trying to sit. I can do this. I can work harder. I can serve more. I could spend more time trying this so I could change my behavior and get hope. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves sitting up on the throne of our own hearts, becoming our own gods, hoping in ourselves, and we never intended to be there. It slipped right by us. 
Because somewhere along the line, we misheard Jesus. Somewhere along the line, we took our eyes off the one true hope and we made a bad exchange to something that could never give us hope. Look at verse 7. It says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. Listen, y'all. Jesus says, hey, do you want to be healed? His go-to was this. Well, the pool, this pool over here, without the walking, right? The pool over here. Why did his mind directly go to the pool? He's got the son of God with all power standing in front of him saying, I want to heal you. And he goes, but the pool, how often do you do that? You're comfortable with the thing you're hoping in? That's not Jesus. And so when real power shows up, when Jesus is standing there going, hey, can I heal you? Your mind goes back to that thing you've been hoping in, that idol kind of in your life that you've not even known crept up into your heart. And we misplace it. We, we make a bad trade. A few years ago, there was a hurricane, and it knocked all everybody's power and water out. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. And um, the power in my house went out. And so luckily, I keep a, an emergency flashlight in my house. I brought it for you this morning. Here's my emergency, really junk 50-cent flashlight that I keep, but it's kind of almost camo, and it's cool. So I grab my flashlight because the lights are out. It's pitch black. It's storm dark. If you know what I'm talking about, you're from Florida. It is so dark. And it's in the middle of the night. I grab my flashlight, and I flick it. Nothing. It's broken, actually, now. It doesn't even work at this point. But at the time, it didn't. Nothing. It, it didn't turn on. And so, luckily, I'm smart. I'm a Floridian. I have a drawer in my house for emergencies. You have an emergency drawer? You know what I'm talking about? So I have to feel my way through my house, kind of stumbling and tripping on everything, get to my kitchen, to the emergency drawer. But at this point, my emergency drawer, as I'm using my fingers to feel what's in there, I notice something. It has become more of a miscellaneous drawer. Let me interpret that. That means junk drawer, right? Like it just turns in. And so I'm trying to figure out where the battery is because I know as I shake my flashlight, I hear one battery shaking around. I'm like, oh, how do you get one battery in your flashlight? You always need two, right? And so I'm feeling around and I finally locate based on the way I feel it. I feel the right size and shape. I'm like, there it is. There's my fresh battery. And so I grab it. I pull it out. And in the pitch black, I put it into my flashlight, shove it in there, turn the cap, flick the switch. Still nothing. Oh, I'm so mad. Have you ever gotten mad like that? Just frustrated. And so I start to unscrew things and screw things back together and tap it and, and blow on it and all these weird things. I'm trying to just get it to work. It won't work. And so I finally give up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through. I need to think like an engineer, right? I'm not an engineer, believe me. But I'm like, I need to think like one. And so I come up with this strategic plan of what I'm going to do, very thought out, very, very engineer-like. And here's my plan. I was going to take this flashlight and just it on the counter as many times as I could, you know, till it worked. Didn't work. Surprise, right? So I take the cap off and I'm dropping the batteries down into my hand, giving up. And just as I do, poof, the lights turn on. You know how everything starts to beep in your house when the power comes back? Like beep, beep everywhere and lights are blinding you. And all I see falling out of the flashlight is a battery and a tube of chapstick. <laughs> and, I'm like, really? You shouldn't tell things like that to big groups of people around the internet. It makes you look real dumb. But, but have you ever felt yourself, though, in a moment like that? You're like, I didn't know better stumbling around in the dark. I was feeling for the thing that felt closest to what I needed. 
And there have been times for sure in my life where I felt like I was just in darkness. In that moment where it's just hard to see, it's hard to think, everything feels, man, just so dark. And when you get in those moments, it's not your intention to choose an idol, right? But as you feel around in the junk drawer of your life, looking for something to bring relief, something that might fit, might be close enough, and you grab the first thing that feels like it could, could fit, and you feel that little feeling of hope, like, oh, I found it. And you try to shove it in where it doesn't belong. That, that chapstick was never going to light this flashlight. It wasn't designed to do that. It couldn't give power. I needed a power source to light up this flashlight. The same way you and I need a power source to light up our hearts. Amen. And there's only one that fits. It's only Jesus that can fit and give you hope. That can put power into your life. Be careful not to make that bad exchange as you feel around in those dark moments and grab the first thing that feels like it could give hope. Don't make a bad trade. Realize that Jesus is the only one that could bring power to you. Mr. Cottrell, Tim Cottrell is a Bible teacher here at Merritt Island Christian School. And his goal is for all of our students, by the time they graduate, to be able to know this phrase. I love Mr. Cottrell. I love that he wants our kids to know this. I remember it myself. He says this. God is God, and I am not. And as we talk about hope this morning, you need to remember that phrase. God is God, I am not. There is no substitute for Jesus Christ. But we're, we're good church people. You know, we don't have idols, right? This is 2022. We don't make metal idols and set them up or wood idols and worship them anymore. We don't do that. But how many idols do creep into our hearts, even into our churches? How many times do we grab for the thing we shouldn't, thinking it'll give us hope? If I could just have a bigger house, if I could just have a little more money, if I could just give my kids a little bit more, if I could just, you know, if we just had a, a better government or a better leader, a better politician to lead us, things would be better and I would feel hope in my heart. Maybe if I served a little bit more at church, then it would do it. There are too many pastors today falling and failing because they've put more hope in their ministries than they have in the person, Jesus Christ. There is no exchange, no trade for Jesus. He himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the only. The man continues his story to Jesus. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he continues by using this phrase. He says, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. You know what he's doing? He's doing what you and I do. He's making an excuse you see, he heard Jesus say, how come after 38 years you haven't been healed? And so he feels like he owes Jesus an excuse for why his idol is so powerless. Why after every day for 38 years, bro, you've been trying this and it still hasn't worked. There's no power in that pool that's going to heal you. And so he felt like he needed to explain to Jesus and give him a really good excuse why he was still trying the same thing over and over again. 
You ever do that? It seems to be the thing that wrecks lives. When we start to make excuses for our idols that have no power, when Jesus is offering us real power in our lives, but we say, you know what? Actually, Jesus, like, this is what's going on, and that's why it's not working. I think of a, of a drug addict or an alcoholic who uses the excuse of, man, if I could just get a little more high, if I could just get a higher hit, if I could do some stronger drugs, then, you know, like, then I'd feel better. I'd, sat, I'd be satisfied if I could just do more, do more, do more until his life is wrecked. The man who's unhappy with his marriage. And instead of going to Jesus and seeking counseling and getting help in a healthy way, he says, well, you know what would make me feel a little better and give me some relief is if I just talk to that cashier. Just, just say hi as I go through the line. Or, or maybe, you know, that's not working, so maybe it's just that I need to, I need to text her. Or maybe, maybe we just meet for a coffee, just as friends. Just as friends, not a big deal. And the more and more he makes excuses why it's not working and what he needs to make it work, give that idle power that will never give him hope, he ends up ruining his marriage and his family. Or that dad who's trying to build that company. If I could just work a few more hours, if I could just make a little more money, if I could just do this and that. I know I don't have time for my wife and kids or time for my relationship with Jesus or time for the kingdom of God. But if I could just get a here, just get a little bit more. It's always a little bit more. How many things do we have in our lives that we do that with? What are the things in your life that you're, you're expecting power from. It's just not giving it. You're looking for hope in things that will never give it. They're chapstick. They were never intended to light your life up. But we make excuses. And in our excuses, we fall deeper and deeper into sin. Because our hearts are turned away from Jesus. And our hope is put on broken things that can never satisfy. Because there is nothing and no one like Jesus Christ. Jesus looks at this man in verse 8, and he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. The last thing I'd have you write down this morning if you're taking notes is this. The power of Christ compels us to share See, this guy was like in the middle of an excuse. Do you realize that? The excuse was dripping out of his mouth of why this pool should have been more powerful. And in the middle of him giving an excuse, that's when Jesus decides to just like show up like a strike of lightning and be like, hey, guess what? I just healed you. But I was talking about the pool and oh my goodness, I'm walking. <laughs> like Jesus just silenced this man with action with power, showed him, I am the one true king. Remember where they're at, at the sheep gate? Remember when it was, the feast time? Remember who's here, the hopeless? And here's Jesus, the perfect, spotless lamb of God, the only one that can heal him, not that pool, not anything else in your life, only Jesus. And it's like he's standing in front of this man saying, there's no other way but me, let me prove it. And he heals him. And this man gets up and walks. He doesn't even know that it's Jesus at the time. As a matter of fact, look down a few verses. Verses 14 and 15. Jesus goes back and finds him. It says this. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, 
See, you are well. Sin no more. (laughs) This guy finally realizes, as he's seen true power, who he is. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. And not only did he receive physical healing that day, but he received something so much better. Jesus took his dead soul and brought it back to life. Jesus healed this guy and forgave his sin and gave him salvation, a much bigger gift than healing from being paralyzed. What an amazing gift that Jesus offers him. And he says this, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. When you experience true hope, true power in your life, it's unmistakable that it is the only power source that will work for you. Your heart is convinced that you've just met the genuine article. Your idols are pushed out because there's not enough room on the throne of your heart for Jesus and idols. So instead of trying to fight your idols, invite Jesus to come in. As Jesus enters and his hope enters your heart, it will push those idols out. You'll say, I don't have any need anymore for a pool that can't work. I just found real hope. I'm going to cling to the real hope that I've just encountered. And you know what? I want other people to share in this with me. I would hope if you're sitting here this morning and you've found that real hope in Jesus, that it would drive you, compel you to go into our community, into your homes, among your friends, and that you would want them to have the same hope that you've just received from Christ. That we would be people that go out and share this power of Christ with others, this hope that we've just received. And so as Jesus is in the room this morning, I think he'd be asking us that question. Do you want to be healed? Or have you been too busy making excuses for why your idols have no power? You've been looking for hope and it just hasn't been working, but you're comfortable with it. It's scary to take your life and say, here, Jesus, take it all, because what if he changes it? Oh, my goodness. What if he makes changes to my life? I'm comfortable here at this pool. I'm comfortable like this guy was by the side of this pointless pool. But I think Jesus is looking at him going, hey man, I came to stir the waters up and I'm not talking about the waters in the pool. I came to stir the waters up in your heart to stir your life up so you'd have the courage to say, Jesus, it's scary, but here's all of me. Here's the whole thing. Every piece of my life, you can have it all. Do what you want with it. You are my only hope now and forever, Jesus. Let him stir you up. Let him shake up your life. Let him do what he knows so much better than you do to do with you. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to see his power in your life? We need to be more like that man who is sitting at the feet of Jesus, laying at the feet of Jesus, broken, paralyzed, You see, this guy had no hope. He could go nowhere. He couldn't put himself in the pool. All he could do was just be there at the feet of Jesus and say, I can't do a thing. I can't move an inch. And maybe Jesus wants us to start there where we realize how incapable we really are and how dependent we really are on his power. And like that man that we would lay at his feet and just say, Jesus, here's all of me. Push out the idols. 
Take over the throne of my heart and fill me with hope that only you can give. And maybe you pray this prayer of the old hymn, I surrender all, all to thee, my precious Savior. I surrender all. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need you. God, we trust in your power and we admit this morning that alone we can do nothing. God, there is no other substitute but Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the perfect lamb. Thank you that he is the source of hope for each of us, that that gate isn't barred or locked. But if we knock, the door will be open to us freely. And you're standing in front of us today. God, we know you're saying, do you want to be healed? Give us the courage to say yes. God, this morning for those who are sitting here hurting and finding themselves in a dark moment, would you give them the courage to just take their whole life up and hand it to you and trust you with all of it? We love you so much, Jesus. It is in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.